On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. Joining me is my good buddy Thomas Trans. Tom, what's going on, man? Damn, let's do this. Uh, having our having our two two to three time a week nerdy hockey conversation, but this time for for the consumption of your listeners, love to do it. Thanks for having me. That's right. Uh, well, we were joking. Um, it's really we're just pressing record. Otherwise, we would probably just be having the same conversation with with the same excruciating detail and nerdiness. <laughs> yeah, so. maybe a couple of takes that we're not quite as comfortable sharing on mic. But other than that, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, listen, it's a, it's an early Sunday evening. We're going to go true. watch um, Celtics Heat Game Seven after this, so we're going to be try to uh, in and out of here efficiently. Um, so here's the plan: we're gonna we're gonna recap round two and kind of apply it to previewing the conference finals. Yeah. We are recording this before Game 7 of Rangers-Hurricanes because those pesky Rangers decided to screw with our plans and force a Game 7. So, <laughs> Or is it the pesky Hurricanes who just refuse to win on the road? It's one of those for yeah. sure. So we're going to touch on that series, and I think we're going to more so apply it to like when we talk about the Lightning Panthers, and then we're going right. to talk about Lightning because we know they're playing. So then we can be like, all right, maybe this is what either of those teams could do against the Lightning uh, more so than focus. The, the on Rangers them. could show up. <laughs> that's about all they can do against the lightning i thought well we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll get into we'll it. save okay. that for later yeah okay so let's start with oilers flames i think that's the very natural starting point for us here because what a sexy series what a sexy series and also like i mean we have to talk about mcdavid i feel like you can't have a hockey conversation today without starting with that i Th- mean that one also passed the mom test right you know like my mom was asking me about that series she was like checking in with me you know, my neighbors, uh, I, I'm, I'm neighbors with a guy named Gord. My next door neighbor is a guy named Gord, who's a big Oilers fan, of course. It's the most Canadian thing about me, other than the fact that I'm a hockey writer. Yeah. And, like, I felt like that was a series that actually captured people in Canada's imaginations. Like, people were following that series, tracking that series. I feel like that resonated in a way that, you know, I can't think of the last time a hockey series has in the last two and a half years. Like, it felt big felt bigger than just the games being played. And unfortunately, it ended too soon, right? I mean, the well, Oilers... I don't think that's the barometer, though, because I imagine that would have captured the attention of everyone in Canada, regardless. Do you think it did enough to like break through into the actual like mainstream of the United States with I don't. them having it on ESPN and everything? I don't, I don't think so. Not the same way, anyway, uh, particularly because it was happening so late. That's true. But, you know, I, I, do, think, I do think McDavid McKinnon has a shot, too. And, and we'll get into that, too. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's two things that I think are the stories of this series, right? Obviously, it's more complicated than that. The Oilers have gotten some really good performances from guys like CeCe, McLeod, uh, you know, Zach Hyman. Yep. And, and that can't be ignored. But 
for the playoffs. Like this to me is the is the Oilers stat you need to know, right? For the playoffs with McDavid on the ice five on five. It's twenty five goals for, it's nine goals against, yeah. plus sixteen. Right. Unbelievable. Without McDavid on the ice, it's ten goals for, eighteen against. And that and that to me is, you know, McDavid Dom decision I saw at the Athletics sort of compared McDavid's impact to that of a, an NBA player. And for sure, I mean, McDavid's gone playoff Jimmy yeah. <laughs> on the Pacific Division. Yeah. And it's been scintillating. Like, I'm, I'm so happy to see an elite player have this type of impact because it feels like Haley's Comet. We just so rarely see a guy will a, a pretty flawed team, in my view, uh, through multiple rounds of the playoffs like yeah. this. It, it's, it's awesome to watch. Okay, I knew you were going to come with that stat, and I'm going to come with a bit of a counter. Okay. So especially, so I agree in round one, it was very lopsided in that regard. Like, really, especially towards the end of that series, it was like McDavid just willing them yeah. to everything they did. In this series against the Flames, they were up 14-5 to five with McDavid on the ice at 5 on 5 So that means that they were down 10-5 to five in the non-McDavid minutes, which is mm-hmm. bad. If you remove the Josh Archibald minutes... <laughs> where he somehow miraculously got outscored five nothing in twenty eight minutes of five on five ice. Well, I don't think that's miraculous. That's well not surprising at all. Well, I I agree. But I'm, what I'm saying is, if you strip that away, and and we can talk about whether you can strip that away in a second here. But then you basically are breaking even, and that's really all this team needs to do based at the level that McDavid oh, yeah. are playing. At. Oh, if they if break even, they're winning. Yeah, in the in the non McDavid minutes, and I don't think they can. Well. Well, maybe not in this coming series, but for this Flames series, I guess the, the reason why I wanted to bring that up was obviously we're going to talk about what McDavid and Dre Settle did, and it was remarkable and, and heroic and all of that. But like, there were contributions from players yeah. beyond that line. For sure, there were. And I think maybe that stat, like without the context of like the fourth line was just a tire fire. Mm-hmm. Like the other, the second and the third line were actually quite good. Um, and they, so they took over that series as it went along, yeah. right? Like by by games four and five. They were the better team, no matter what game state you preferred, in my view. Yeah. And yet, that Blake Coleman disallowed goal is unbelievable. I'm still not really over it. I'm still stunned that that goal didn't stand. I didn't watch it live. I was at a comedy show. But when, once I sort of caught up to everything, I just can't believe that that's how that series ended. I, I do feel like we kind of got deprived of some really good Saturday night hockey anyway yes. this weekend. Yeah. Just because that should have counted every time. Well, here's a story for me in this series. It's very, it's much more nuanced than this, but at the root of it, Edmonton's best players were better than Calgary's best players. 100%. And the reason why that's relevant is because the Flames clearly entered this series with, I don't want to say, um, you know, a disregard for how they were going to handle the McDavid minutes, but I think they were probably pretty confident that they felt like they had the superior team based on what we saw from them in the regular season, especially at five on five, that they could handle the, the round of play, right? I, I felt similarly. And so they really seem to have no sort of strategy in the first two games at home with the benefit of home ice in terms of how they wanted to handle those McDavid minutes. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at the distribution of ice time, it was pretty much evenly split between like Lindholm, um, Backlund and Cali Arngrove. They were kind of just rolling lines. I think they thought that they could play their game and force Edmonton to react to them. And they were wrong. They definitely did because in games three and four in Edmonton, that stopped Woodcroft did a very good job of being like, Actually, we're going to target your first line with McDavid because we feel very good about that matchup. He's really good, huh? He is. And, and, He's and we'll, a really good we'll coach. We'll do more on him in a second here. In game three, McDavid played one minute total against Michael Backlund, and right. that wasn't by accident. No. And you could tell, like, I'm a big believer that um, 
actions speak louder than words for coaches. Like coaches will say a lot of stuff in the media, but then you just purely based on how they play their players and how yeah. they distribute ice time tells you a lot about their like inner monologue of how they feel about their team at the moment. And in game five with their season on the line and last change again in Calgary, like he was trying to get Backlund out there every single time he possibly could against McDavid. And unfortunately for them, it was too little too late. But I imagine if he could have a do-over, like he'd have a bit more of that sense of urgency to play the matchup game like right from the jump, even though they did win that game one, I feel like it kind of deluded them into thinking that that was the right way to go about it. Yeah, no, I think you're right, uh, I, for sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I'm thinking about the series too, and there were some moments where, you know, the the Flames were chasing and it felt like Johnny Gaudreau was going to find three open players in the slot if you yep. gave him 30 seconds. You know, at, at, What's amazing about the idea that the Oilers best, the, the John Maddenism you threw at us, right? The Oilers best players were better than the Flames best yes. players. What I, what's most impressive about that is I felt like the Oilers or the Flames' best players were actually pretty good. Right. Like I felt like Johnny Gaudreau had a pretty good series. I know Matthew Kachuk didn't score a ton, yeah. but I felt like he was doing Matthew Kachuk stuff more shifts than not. Um, it kind of just didn't matter. McDavid was at just such a different level, especially once Dreisaitl and Kane you know, once they came up with that trio, it felt like their trajectory. Let's put it this way. I, you know, once the flame, uh, the Oilers made the coaching change, right? It's like yep. they were uh, in, in Mario. They got like the mushroom, right? Yep. And then once they threw Kane with Dreisaitl, they got a star, right? Or, or a cape, whatever you prefer, whatever Mario item you'd prefer okay, in this analogy. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And, and it, changed, it changed their level. Like, I, I'm almost trying to think, like, when was the last time we saw an alignment change? in the first round that sort of altered the ceiling that a team might have as fundamentally as that change did for the Oilers. I think you have to go back to Seidenberg being put with Chara in 2011. Like, I, honestly, I can't think of something I've seen in 10 years that has substantially altered how I think about a team as the playoffs run along, as, as that change did for Edmonton. Yeah, well, I, I know it, like, on the surface, it what I said about like their best players are better than the rest of us. Like, yeah, obviously. But it, 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 <laughs> I, I think the reason why it was, is such a relevant point is because like you rarely do you get to see uh, such a big chunk of a series played in this mm. capacity where like both teams just like you see their best lines go against each other. Usually you have like uh, manipulation of matchups where like yeah. one team at home is trying to get their defensive center out against their scoring line to free up their line. Totally. In this case, we saw a lot of, um, H2H versus Lindholm, right? Yeah. Well, McDavid, McDavid against the best line in the NHL this season. Well, and, that's, that's and he just took it down. That's the crazy part. Like, I, I was trying to be critical of Sutter of like, oh, how could he not do this from game one? And then it's like, well, this line outscored everyone 73 to 31. <laughs> I know. Lindholm is a finalist for the Selkie. Selkie. Yeah. Like, they came in as the favorites. They had and the a whole good minus. finalist, by the way. Yeah. Just, I just want to tell hockey Twitter that. Yeah. And, and deserved. It's and it was really weird because as you watch the series play out, like the stats were one thing, but like from the eye test, it, it really did seem like when Backlund was out there, like it looked different for the Flames. Like mm -hmm. they actually had a bit of a chance, and like I think they still lost two to one or something in those minutes, but they only gave up two goals to McDavid in like thirty minutes. Backlund was out there; they got smoked seven to two in like thirty-five minutes with Lindholm out there against him, and and so that really was the story for me in this series. I do guess. You, do you so? Let's take this lesson. The lesson that Daryl Sutter learned too late, right? Yes. And and if Daryl Sutter is learning a lesson too late, you know it's a tough lesson to learn because Daryl Sutter's the best, yes. right? So if Daryl Sutter's taking multiple games and it's too late for him to make the adjustment, yep. uh, Jared Bednar, I'm sure, is is being kept up at night at the moment 
looking, you know, at stats pages yes. and video and trying to figure right, this right, out. Kadri, right? right? Kadri Nachushkin, you gotta, you gotta. Do, I mean, that's that's what you gotta do, right? Well, he's. I mean, first off, Bednar is blessed with much better options here in this regard, just in terms of the like the the variety that he can throw, especially with the wingers. Like, I feel like the wingers that the the Avs have, like Lekkinen, Nachushkin. You could even like Landis Gog. Like you, you can yeah. you can mix it around and basically feel comfortable that some combination of those players will give you the best shot possible to at least. Lekkinen Lekkinen's actually an underrated like um, luxury for them here yes. because there's not a lot of guys who both can keep up with McDavid and who you know will work hard enough to get back. You know, like a lot of the guys who can keep up with McDavid are like happy to do it skating forward. Yes. Maybe not so happy right. to do it skating back. He's one of them. He's one of those guys. No, he is. I guess. You know, I was thinking about that for this series. Part of what complicates matters when you're trying to match up against this version of McDavid. And I, you, I guess you can't give Woodcroft too much credit in terms of, like, he's playing the best player in the world a lot. But from this perspective, in terms of how meticulously he's manufacturing, like, shifts for him between, like, TV timeouts and stuff to, like, mm-hmm. maximize the number of times he can get him on the ice. Here's ice times since game six of round one when they faced elimination for the first time. 24-02. 27-23, and all, like pretty much all these are regulation games. 25-33, 21-30, 20 and a half minutes, which was the game the Oilers went up 4 nothing yeah. against the Flames. Is this McDavid or Adrian Acoin? Like, this is incredible. 22-15, and then 26-16 in the clincher against the Flames. The reason why I bring that up is it's one thing for you to go into a game with the strategy of we're going to get our best, whatever our preferred unit is, against McDavid. But if you're chasing that matchup so much, that means like you're probably not getting your best players on the ice a lot because you're just basically saying like, all right, half the game is going to be our quote unquote checking line. Yeah. And if that's not Nathan McKinnon, I'm not sure that's a great strategy for the Avs to be so focused on at the same time. 10 days from now, if we're like, why didn't, why were they so laissez-faire in their approach in terms of matching? So you you just, you just have to limit the damage. I, I mean, there's still a lot of non-McDavid minutes, right? Yeah. And, and you just have to limit the damage, I, I think, in my view. I, when you're blessed, too, with, you know, Nichushkin's probably a top five two-way winger in, in the sport. Uh, I, used to, I used to think uh, Evolving Hockey needed to watch the games when they, when they said stuff like that. But now I kind of agree. Like, you know, he's, he's not... Well, his game has also opened up so much offensively, though. Totally. But like he's making passes in the offensive zone that he wasn't making. But it's the, it's the combination... It's it's the combination of like size, smarts, yes, yeah. um, active stick, the ability to use that size. Like he definitely looks a little Mark Stone light, um, but <laughs> faster, but a better skater, and uh, maybe not quite as good on the wall. But I mean, you know, Mark Stone light in terms of his defensive impact. So you've got that. You've got Kadri. Kadri's not a Selkie nominee this year, but I mean, Kadri's the gold standard, or, or certainly up there in terms of like who's a thirty goal scoring shutdown center in this league. Like Kadri is one of the top five or five yep. guys who match that description. He's certainly a high-end version of, of Backland at the very least, right? Uh, I, I just, you have to go with those guys, a heavy dose of those guys. Cause again, the goal's not even to outscore them in those minutes. It's just a stem, like just don't bleed out. Just don't bleed out. I think the Az are lucky that Jared Bednar is their coach because in the wrong hands, this could be a lot of game six hero, Darren Helm, Andrew Cogliano, and Logan O'Connor. You oh, know what I mean? Like, so right. Like, yeah. a, like a different coach that maybe didn't have a progressive mindset would just be so um, kind of like boxed into like the 
the traditional roles of like this is these are our defensive guys and so when David's out there we're gonna get like Rick Bonus would be all over that like he'd be he'd be getting them out there as much as he possibly could a lot it's of like, a lot of Jack Johnson yeah, against really Connor McDavid you, you want to be deservedly um, careful managing McDavid but you don't want to be like playing worse players just for the sake of playing them. let's talk about Taves McCarr versus McDavid really quick by the way because I know I know you've got a you've got a blues thing you want to talk about but yes. just really quickly and, and then we can come back and, and dwell on this more okay. but what a luxury you've got maybe the only defense core that I feel might be able to keep up with McDavid might yeah um, maybe potentially uh, that's a huge luxury for the Avs in this series and that's the other thing that they can't hesitate on like you can't worry about Manson or Eric, like those guys have to play an outrageous minutes burden in this series. They have to be on whenever McDavid is. Yeah. Well, I think they will. I, I think, think they will, will too. I think that, yeah, that, that's 30, shown. They're, 30, not, they're not worried minutes. about it. Yeah. No. Um, I do want to talk about Leandre Seidel here, obviously, because he's going to be a bit of a footnote just because of what McDavid's doing. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's, it's very tough just stylistically. Like McDavid is just such a supernova that, regardless of anything else like he's he has the numbers to back it up but just like watching him that's where you gravitate towards right but Joyce Idol had 15 assists in these five games 17 points on one leg he's up to 26 points tied with McDavid now I think what's so fascinating to me about him is yes on one leg like he's clearly basically functioning on on one wheel right now because that ankle injury and so at the start of this postseason you were alluding to this the first five games, he was struggling a lot where they were like just trying to have him center his own line and do usual Leandre Seidel stuff, and he clearly yeah. physically couldn't handle it. Yeah. And game six, they adjusted by being like, all right, like we're going to lean on our depth a bit more here. We're just going to try to make life easier for Seidel, play him with McDavid, less of the heavy lifting for him, but maybe maximize his offensive potential, right? And since then, um, you know, the numbers have taken off. They're up 16 to 5 in like 104 minutes or something. They're and 6 and together. 1 in terms of Absurd. their win loss record. Yes. So it's, it's worked out. You know, for me, I'm no doctor by any means. I do have a, a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. So <laughs> I do want a little bit about the human body, but obviously this is just very like yeah. rudimentary stuff. But I would say you see that it's hampering him the most, like when he's trying to shoot, especially that patented one timer of his mm-hmm. from the right circle. And it makes sense, right? Like when you watch him when he's at his best. Like there's so much lower body torque where he's like trying to like move his body quickly to well, and especially him yes. because he has the most deceptive release point I've ever seen probably honestly yes. I mean his particular skill is that you don't understand when the shot's coming yeah you know what I mean like I, I just I see no way if you're a goaltender to predict when or how or at what angle Drysital is going to shoot from because it feels like he can. Uh, you know, you know, he like, uh, you know how there was never a bad pass to Randy Moss, right? There's yep. never a bad pass to Leon Dreisaitl for a one-timer. Like he can, you know, hit it off his heel. He can hit it off in, in so many, his wheelhouse is just gigantic. It is. And he can do that at stride. He can do that with his wrist shot. I mean, but yeah, you're right. I don't think we have a, a Dreisaitl with the full battery of tricks at the moment. And it doesn't matter. He's finding other ways to be. Well, here's, here's why so effective. I, I brought that up against the flames. He attempted nine five-on-five shots for the entire series. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's taken 25 for the playoffs at five-on-five, which is tied with Kyler Yamamoto on the team for 11th most. Right. Like, he's taken less than, like, Duncan Keith. Yeah. And he's never been, like, a, a, a crazy volume shooter because he's, like, he's literally converting on 20%, of, 20% <laughs> of his shots. So, like, yeah. he's an efficient volume shooter. But it's clear that he's had to change... Uh, the way he's playing because that's bothering him. So he's become much more of a distributor. And that's what's so remarkable to me that 
like a great player can find different ways to beat you, but like he's been forced to, he's basically putting on like a Yarmar Yager clinic of he gets a defender on his back. Yeah. He goes like behind the net. He's just holding them off and shielding the puck. And then like Darnell Nurse comes streaking down or something and he hits him for a one-timer and they score. And it's like, he doesn't need the mobility at this point because he's almost, it's kind of like a, a Joe Thornton thing in his prime, right? For the last mm. couple of years in the Sharks when he was still really good, where he's almost bringing the pace of the game down to his preferred pace. Right. So everyone else can be skating fast around him, but he's the one with the puck. And ultimately it only matters like what he does next with it. Cause no one else can get it from him. Yeah. Well, one really quick thing. If you talk to some of the guys who've been around that team in recent years, like one thing that I, I think, you know, is underappreciated about Dreisaitl in general, beyond the fact that he's one of the game's best players and is so frequently overshadowed because of McDavid. Yeah. You know, not, not unlike what happened with Malkin and, and Crosby. Right. I mean, it's not the, he's not the first guy to be in this position, but what I think his evolution into an absolute blue chip apex predator offensive player in this league gave Edmonton was it gave McDavid a peer. And from what I understand, the level of competition between those two is like absolutely through the roof, right? Like even in terms of off-ice workouts or like training sessions when you come in for reporting day, like apparently they hate to lose to each other. Mm. And and so, you know, you, I think the public got a little glimpse of this early in the season when McDavid spent all this time working on his one-timer in the summer. And, yep. and it was just like, you know, why? Well, it was something Dreisaitl was materially better than me at. And they sort of were joking about it. But it's like, you don't do that if you don't want to beat a guy. Yep. And you don't want to beat a guy and also maintain that relationship if there's not you know, that deep level of like enjoyment in, in playing with one another. And, and I think when you have two guys that good who push each other that much and who work that hard, it, it starts to create the type of environment that you had in Pittsburgh where everyone levels up that you had in Vancouver with the Sedin twins who were famously competitive with mm. one another, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's this third line winger. He's now Alex Burroughs, right? right? Or, um, you know, in Edmonton. We have this defender. We're not sure if he's ever going to figure it out. It's Darnell Nurse, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone just seems to become the best possible version of themselves. And and you look up and down that lineup and see guys who are like, you know, even Jesse Pugliarvi, who I know yeah. hasn't played a ton in this series. But, I mean, that guy was bus territory 18 months ago. Yeah. And now, at the very least, is a super effective two-way winger. And I, I think considerably better than that well don't Perhaps, don't tell us on members of the local media though well i tell i tell the local i tell them all the time yeah <laughs> on twitter I, jim matheson's one of my favorites Insane. so yeah. <laughs> but uh but you know you look up and down that lineup all those guys who've leveled up like i know we're not used to assigning credit to dreisaitl for what kyler yamamoto does and, right, or, right, or right, jesse right. pulley or, or darnell nurse but yeah i don't think you can divorce uh what those two have done to change and i hate to use the word culture or something but to change the vibe around what the Oilers are as a team and an organization. Yeah. I would say also just getting more good players has helped in that regard. Well, <laughs> they don't have, especially, especially because aside from, I mean, I'm not a big Keith guy. Yes. But and Archibald and, but, but I'm a, Cassidy. but I've always been a bit of a CC truther. And so I'm CC's glad he's been to see, good. He's been really Any, good. Anyone's and I've made more, more fun of Cody CC and I think deservedly so in the past than anyone. Yeah. If you're still making fun of him, it's, it, you're just not watching these you're games. You're not watching these games. No, like he's, he's a zero with a puck. He's yeah. not going to give you anything with that, but defensively he's good. 
like uh, like um, retro penguins, Ron Hainsey. Yeah, like yeah. 2016 yeah. Ron Hainsey like the, vibes off of CC right now. He's this team's number one defenseman, like literally oh, yeah. in terms of usage, in terms of five on five, shorthanded, I know. and he's doing well, like well enough in those minutes. He's playing like half of those minutes with McDavid because McDavid's always on the ice. Yeah, so that helps. But well, perfect. He's doing his job and, and very well. Yes. I mean, if if they had another Cody CC, I'd feel better against them. Or I feel better about them against the Avs. But with the exception of Archibald Keith, yeah. like you look up and down the lineup, and at the very least... I mean, what a godsend Ryan McLeod's been. I know, oh. I know you like him, but like, man, watching him I've, play... I've been a big McLeod truther for You know a while. what? He does... I'm, I'm not sure if the scoring's ever going to come. I'm not going to rule it out because he's 22 years old and like he was a point of game in the AHL yeah. last year. Like I think there's more to his game than this. But even if this is exactly what he is and just levels off at this, like this is such a valuable player for them because he just plays really fast... Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have to like super dumb the game down when he's out there. An elite transition player who's good defensively. Like when you have McDavid and Dreisaitl, this is exactly what you need. You just as, like need, a third you just center. Need four guys like that. Yes. You know, I, again, that's the that's the Penguins model. Like right. Bluger, Aston Reese. I mean, some of those guys are better than that, but it's like yeah. You know, if you have four guys like that and three elite pieces, you're a very very good team. And the Oilers for so long have had like six guys who are sub average or, or, you know, something like that. And right now it feels like they have one defender, one, one defender that I, that I really worry about and one forward that, well, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go with two. Cause I, I don't really buy uh Bouchard as, as a defensive piece yet. Um, and, and, and Archibald. But aside from that, I kind of am okay with everyone on the team. Like I, I, I think they're at least useful or, or players who I think could do even more in expanded roles, guys like Pulley RV and, yeah. and Yamamoto. And McLeod, to be honest with you. And once you get into that sort of level of depth, you're pretty good. Now, I do think there's one other thing, though, worth noting, which is that, you know, we have to, like, banners fly forever. And Mm -hmm. the Edmonton Oilers are now eight games away from winning a Stanley Cup final. You can do everything right, right? Like, think about the Avs. You you can do everything right for three years and build a model team. Yeah. And this is the first time they've gotten here. Right. Yes. Yeah. Or you can do it like the Oilers, where you've done almost everything wrong for lots of years and still get there. Yeah. But the point is, is what they've accomplished already is meaningful. Right. But there was a scenario, there was a world where if they bought out Koskinen last offseason, they could have had 30 million in cap space for this summer. Instead, they ended up with about 25. Uh, they bought out Neil, but not Koskinen. And, you know, with that money, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, right? They they brought bring in Zach Hyman, who's been tremendous yep. for them this season. But storm clouds are on the horizon for that contract, without question. Uh, especially for a player who, as good as he's been in this playoffs, Toronto replaced for eight hundred k. Yes, he um, has, he has been really good. Though. He's been really good, really but good. Yeah. I mean, he was a replaceable piece at the yes. end of the day for another team, and he's got what six years left after this. Like there is going to come a time where he's a net negative for this club. Period. Um, the Duncan Keith deal, which I give them a bit of a break on because I look at the low salary and suspect that there's an ownership level reluctance uh, to, to let them spend all of that cap space. Uh, Cody CC, who's been really good, but, but again, I think there was a chance here this past off season for the Oilers to open a lasting contention window. And instead, uh, I feel like they've got some Habs vibes on their team this season. They, they successfully completed moves yeah, that, that, that improved them in the short term. They have Connor McDavid and Leandre Seidel. No, I, I know. I'm not saying they're going to, yeah, yeah, they're going to, yeah, they're not going to win like a lot of draft lottery next but year. But the Habs yeah. were the only team with buying power in the summer of 2020. 
um, in a historic buyer's market yep. and signed what one good deal, like one deal right. aged well, which was the Toffoli deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they were, they were the only team with both cap space and money and they were using it on Jake Allen and, and Edmondson. And it's like, you know, great. They, they had playoff success. Kudos, but Tom, you're killing the vibes here, man. I'm this just is, saying that should have been a window. That should have been a win. That should have been an off season to set them up for decades of, uh, for a half decade of success. Yeah. And they, and they instead make the cup final, but kind of blew it. And I still feel that way about the Oilers 2021 offseason, even though in the short term, clearly the moves have paid off to make them pretty formidable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I listen, I, I, I agree with you. I don't I don't think we need to be like chest thumping about how Ken Holland is actually a mastermind architect because they're making the Western Conference finals here. Right. But well, we just we have to we have to keep, I think, both things in mind. <laughs> the short term matters, but the opportunity cost is still through the roof for yes. Edmonton. At, you know, at a higher ebb than it is for, in my view, the other teams still alive. Yeah. Um, I think that's about everything I have on the Oilers. I guess the only, the last Oilers point that I had was, I know they have a bit of a, um, like a high shooting percentage right now, just because they're scoring so many goals. And normally you'd be like poo-pooing that and being like, well, this, there's no way this continues. And And certainly over the course of a short playoff series, anything can happen. Like we saw last year against the Jets, like they had like a 6% yeah. on a shooting percentage of McDavid on the ice. Like, I don't think we're not betting against Connor McDavid's shooting percentage regressing dramatically against Darcy Kemper. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I'm, what I'm saying is anything can happen, but I, I what I, what anything I think can happen. What I know it can, what I am saying, what I am saying here though, is like, if you look at the actual context of how they're coming across their offense, yeah, like, Everything is flowing through McDavid and Dre Seidel. Like, I've been tracking these games. McDavid is 71, 5-on-5 shot assists this season, or this postseason. Dre Seidel is 46, and no one else on the team has 20. So, like, <laughs> so they're getting a lot of high-danger chances, right? Like, I think McDavid, Hyman, and, and Evander Kane are literally 1-2-3 in terms of high-danger chances, according to, yeah. to natural statistics right now. And, like, every other shot is basically being set up by two of the best whatever, how many players you want to name yeah. that can actually probably drive, drive percentage. Yeah. At least increase the baseline level of expectation that that shot's going to go in because they're the one passing. Yeah. I mean, it. I think McDavid and dry can drive percentages. And if someone's debating that, like, I think they're two absolutists. That's my personal. Opinion. I agree. And so they're scoring a lot of goals right now and that's a good formula. Yeah. So, you know, they're going to need to keep scoring a lot of goals. Cause I think the avalanche are going to score a lot of goals in this series as well. And I guess that maybe this is a good segue for us to talk yeah. more about the abs now here and kind of bring this all your, together. The abs and your St. Louis blues, my St. Louis blues. I, I was way the, higher on them than me. I've, and I had respect for them. I, I just, thought the discourse around them was just so missing, missing the point. I just didn't see them as elite. I just saw them as like the, I saw them as the best version of, of what I call the like Rangers predators, um, you know, sort of tier of contenders, Blues are in there too. Yeah, where you know you may not have a championship five on five gear, but you have so much depth, so much solidity, um, excellent special teams, and and you have the experience where you've done it before. Uh, so I mean, I just saw them as sort of the best version of that team. Not quite a contender, but you know, certainly a handful. Yeah, I, I just thought Minnesota was better than them. I was wrong, um, and I definitely expected them to get dusted by the Avs, which. I wasn't. Uh, I mean, they I think got that, dominated at five on five. Yeah, that did happen. Yeah, but they gave the Avs more trouble than I thought. Certainly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they they, they put up a pretty good fight there. I, 
I, it just bugged me. Like sometimes the analysis that I see online can be like so um, just missing the actual plot, right? Like it's like look at their expected goal totals. Yeah, they're, and listen, twenty fourth by Corsi four or whatever. It's like I joked a couple podcasts ago, like you know. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become like an eye test truther. But, <laughs> but like anyone, yeah. anyone smart that you would talk to that's like actually been like watching this stuff or, or, or has like a behind the scenes peek at like some, mm-hmm. some other numbers is like, yeah, they're one of the handful of best passing teams in the league. Like they're creating insane scoring chances because they're not taking point shots. They're trying to get like three passes across the ice before they shoot. Yeah. And if you do that, your volume is going to be low. And if you're using that to, to guide your model, it's probably going to say this team sucks, but they were actually scoring a lot for a reason. Yeah. And that, that was my only argument. I didn't think they were a great team or anything. It you was see that. a few teams like this every now and then that are legitimately more efficient in the way that they move the puck as a team. Um, two sort of relatively recent examples come to mind for me, but the uh, Winnipeg Jets in their sort of most recent contention window, um, you know, w- before Blake Wheeler sort of really fell off, they, that was a team that, like the Blues, was just able to pound high danger areas. Like they, their down low passing was just yeah. materially better than everyone else. Yep. And and so even though the underlying numbers weren't super high on them, um, or like didn't consider them to be elite, I always thought they were that next level, um, that next tier of of dangerous opponent because of the way they did that. And and I'd say the Sharks were pretty consistently a team that profiled like that under yes uh, in Joe Thornton's sort of lengthy the tail end of his lengthy prime yes and you know all of that said all of that said the the one part where i agree with the uh, non-eye testers right and i still remember this i still remember this uh when cory schneider right first published his all three zones data mm-hmm. like back in the day when they did every game and he had that army of volunteers yeah. right and i remember he first published that data and i was just looking through it intuitively trying to sort of figure out and i was like Okay, the San Jose Sharks are the most efficient team at entering and exiting. Like in terms of the way that the Sharks transition with control, like they do all the things that we think yes. matter yeah. in terms of driving possession. And yet that was one of their like down years, five on five. That wasn't one of their like 56%. Yeah, I was yeah, like, okay, right. well, what's going on here? Trying to figure it out. And I remember the number that I saw that meant the most to me by like a fair bit was not how efficient a team was at controlling it. It was, what was your raw total of entries attempted? Hmm. And like, number one was the Chicago Blackhawks. That was the year they won the Cups, like 2015. Okay. Number two was the Detroit Red Wings. Now, I sort of took that to be like, oh, I think Mike Babcock's a great coach. Probably was wrong there, but... Um, <laughs> to the, the I'm not aged well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think there's, I still think there's a lesson there, which is that, um, you know, volume matters a ton, but, you know, always in hockey, it's like in a counterintuitive way. And it's the ability to have the puck is almost more important yeah. than the efficiency thing. And at the end of the day, a team like the Blues, I just don't think had a high enough caliber five on five all told, yes. particularly because don't really trust their defense. And I think Ryan O'Reilly's sort of, you know, still an unbelievable player, but losing a click or two off his fastball. Yeah. And it, it did sort of leave them for me like in a lower rung. That said, if it was Blues Oilers... I think I'd be picking the Blues to to at least hold their own in that series. Yeah, I mean, losing to the Avs in, in six, there's certainly no, no shame, shame in that result. No. And and I think they squeezed everything they could out of that. Like, for Colorado, on the one hand, I love watching them play. I love talking about them. Mm-hmm. At the same time, for the purpose of this podcast, at this point, there aren't too many novel 
concepts that I can bring up Spotlight, because yeah. they just have a lot of good players and they play hockey well. And that's like, yes, of course. But that, that, <laughs> like, that, that's what it comes down to. You know what I mean? Like, I, I watch them in transition. I think that's their bread and butter still. Like, they can beat you down low, yeah. grinding it out. They ha- certainly have the personnel with the size and, and, and everything in the offensive zone to, like, muck it up and win an ugly game. But, like, the reason why they're still the best is they have this gear that they can hit in a more sustainable manner than, like, the Florida Panthers, who we're going to talk about later, can. Because... They just keep like it, it just it almost builds upon itself, right? Mm-hmm. And as the as the game goes along, you become more tired, like your legs become heavier, you're trying to get off the ice quickly for changes, and they're just so ruthless about how they attack you and transition over and over again. They almost don't have like an off gear, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're not like it's not like if they go up seven one or something, I'm sure they're gonna t- tone it down a little bit. But like if the game is in doubt, like they're approaching every shift, regardless of who's on the ice for them the same way you know what i mean like they get like nicholas obey kubel out there and like he's trying to do stuff that nathan mckinnon is trying to do (laughs) right and like he doesn't obviously have the skill or like the faculties to pull that off but like they're constantly going that way and 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 i do appreciate that so much because it would it would be so easy to to kind of overthink it and be like all right no we need to once we go up we need to really just kind of slow it down here and lock it down and like they unabashedly just go for it and i do love that about them there was an era of Denver Nuggets basketball with Ty Lawson running the point yeah. before Ty Lawson sort of became like an out of shape guy mm-hmm. um, where they were the fastest team in basketball and they'd just be like fast breaking opponents at elevation and it was so fun to watch because no one else could catch their breath and, and the Nuggets were just playing so quickly and it makes sense like if you have a team that can skate your opponents off the ice and then you get to do it at elevation uh, that's a tidy recipe uh, the Avs are so much fun right now and and i think you know up and down the lineup you know i think about manson right who i didn't love that acquisition personally but the thing i liked about it was that at least it only cost a third i, I there was a good prospect involved too but um the acquisition price for manson versus say ben Chirot, right yes and in, in both cases i thought yes the team's paying for reputation but if you're going to pay for reputation pay a modest amount yeah um well yeah i agree with that at least like josh manson still had like if you looked at it like he's still pretty good at defending the rush and stuff like yeah. that where like stuff that ben Sherratt's like never has this reputation for doing but has just has never been well, the, the, the ben Sherratt counters like the ben Sherratt supporters are like do you watch him play live regularly do it's you like, see no, him commit infractions not. that don't get called come <laughs> yeah. the postseason i was like man and the, the ben Sherratt thing the yeah. ben Sherratt discourse is always amazing but at least, at least they got Manson at a, at a relatively decent price. And I think Lekkonen, too. Like, I don't know that there's been a better... I was thinking about it the other day. And, you know, one team I loved, like, the, the team I was most praising after the deadline was the Rangers. Because I liked that they brought in a lot of material improvements at relatively low... Act, like, yep. Vetrano was cheap. Yep. Cop was way cheaper than I expected a player. Especially for what he's given them, yeah. Especially for what he's given, but also for a player of that caliber with that sort of, like, playoff-tested grit, I thought he'd go for a higher price. And then what they, they got one more for it. Mott. Mott, yep. Mott. Even Braun's been pretty easy, considering just, like, yeah. not having to play Patrick Nemeth, for example. Totally. A big win. Big win. But you, you... And you throw a bunch of acquisitions and all you're using is mid-round picks, right? They hugged their prospects. They yep. kept their guys who were close. It's not like they lost a Braden Schneider or even a Zach Jones or whatever. I, I thought that was really good work, but I think at this point in the playoffs, the guy who I think has been the best fit, 
the smartest acquisition all told is like hmm. I, I i honestly i'm just watching this guy he fits exactly what they want he's a, such a high work rate guy and the fact that he's an rfa and that they're going to be well able to yeah find if they get if they to, get priced adam nachushkin in, in ufa then it'll be a very like natural fit to just totally give him his well, money and if <laughs> i mean they're they're priced out of a lot of guys in ufa yes right? um does okay. kemper hold up that's the big question no that's a, that's such a boring topic I'm any just any goalie no. other than Vasilevsky, I'd be like, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. like, I, I don't know. Talking about goalies for me is like... Anchester. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'll give you... St- okay, let's keep talking about the Avs transition here for a second. I'll give you some stats. Okay. Makar, Taves, and Byram have combined for nearly 300 5-on-5 zone exit attempts this postseason. Okay. What percent do you think they're exiting cleanly with possession? 78. Do that. No. Okay. They're 64, which is a lot. Like, literally, any, <laughs> anything over than 50 is pretty good. No, I know. I, that's, yeah. I, sorry, you were presenting it in a way no, where I was okay, like, okay, yeah, maybe it's not comically high. But M- Makar, okay. 75 times on 104 tries. So, like, 75%, basically. Yeah. Um, just preposterous. I'll give you two. I mean, those are so, those are cards. I wasn't completely off. No, no, you're, I mean, yeah, 78. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> let's lower expectations here okay, okay. excuse bit. me I, you were throwing i thought you were throwing something outrageous at i'll me. give you two things to watch when you watch them play well more yeah, listeners, were, not, but, not for you yeah. you have to get the puck deep against them yeah you have to forecheck them you actually have like pucks in deep for sure is a cliche yeah so many teams lob the puck through the neutral zone thinking it's going to go deep and then taves gloves it down to his stick and immediately makes a pinpoint pass up the ice and you may as well not have exited your zone because you're having to come right back in yeah like it's and, and just watching teams make the same mistake i understand you're tired you're just trying to flip the puck up like you have to literally make it hit the backboards behind their net and make them go retrieve it because otherwise it will be back in your zone before you can even move well i like too how aggressive Makar is at skating at guys who are still changing changing directions yep he's I, i've never really seen anything like it but if a puck if a if a puck nears him and he gets it he skates right at guys who are like still figuring out that possession is changing and at a million miles per hour they generate so much off of Makar being a, a one-man counterattack from the back end um it's a pretty unique skill set i've never really seen a guy do it as like a characteristic thing they always do the way that he does. He always does it. Um, so yeah, they have a lot of players that can hurt you that way. And I actually kind of think they're vulnerable against the forecheck. Uh, see, I, 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 I really don't think they are because of this. Like maybe a team like the Hurricanes could give them a bit of trouble. I just thought, because the, I thought so Calgary could have. I thought Calgary could yeah, have. Yeah, maybe. Although after I was the series, I just saw maybe they can't. They couldn't even well, pressure, yeah. the, pressure the Oilers defenseman. But... I think a lot of teams go into it with the mindset of, all right, we need to forecheck them, so we're going to take the middle of the ice. The thing is, no team uses the boards more effectively than their defensemen do. Mm-hmm. But not in terms of like getting it off the glass and out, like literally making passes, you like diagonal passes off the boards that go right to yeah. forwards stick, and so. It's really tough because if you just shade over to the middle of the ice, they'll gladly just beat you that way. And then all of a sudden you start to kind of compensate for that. And then like, all right, yeah, Makar will just skate right down the middle of the ice. Then it's like, it's a really tough situation to be in. I I understand. Like it's a tough bargain. Last year was a bit easier because like Sam Gerrard was a bit vulnerable because you Mm. could like, he could hear the footsteps and he was making some mistakes. 
I didn't like Ryan Graves. They were playing Patrick Nemeth. This year, like, yeah, obviously they're going to be, they're using Jack Johnson. It's not ideal. But Byram's emergence, I think Byram is such a game changer for them here because he's been so good so far this postseason. And if he can keep doing this, like, it gives them a third elite puck mover and especially a second guy on a different pair to do the heavy lifting for a second pair. Yeah. That it becomes a lot more difficult you to think, just key and you in think, on it. Do you think he handles pressure well enough? I think he has so far. He has so far. Yeah. Well, and I think he'll be able to against Edmonton. But Caroline is a different monster in that regard. Um, Tampa Bay is not, though. So that's sort of an interesting thing. I, I, I have a theory about some of what you've discussed that I want to talk about when we transition to the Florida series. Okay. So I'll, I'll save it. I'll give you one more Byram thing then before we move on. Okay. Because I've been, I mean, obviously it's highly encouraging just literally to see him playing Play? hockey yeah. and, well, and, and looking and healthy. Like that's awesome. He's so foremost. smart, man. He's yes. such a smart player. It's a ton of fun to watch. Um, but the fact that he's also been doing well is obviously a nice, nice addition for the Avs here. Um, you know, when Gerard got hurt, I was really curious to see what they were going to do. Cause obviously the natural thing is like, mm-hmm. all right, yeah, Byram's going to get more minutes, but sometimes, you know, maybe they wanted to ease him in a little bit. Maybe they just want to just fully put him in a Sam Gerard role. Right. But since that injury happened, like the final couple games of that series, he was their third most used defenseman behind Taves and Makar. Mm-hmm. And they were even sprinkling in these shifts where occasionally they would get him out on the ice with Makar yeah. in like offensive settings. And they obliterated the Blues in those minutes. I, I mean, I firmly believe sometimes that you need to just be like, we don't have a top four. The idea of a top four makes sense to everybody because it's like our first and second pair. Yes. But sometimes you have a top three. Right. You know, sometimes you have a top three and you have three other guys. And, and in their case, you have, you know, the, the two Johnsons and, um, excuse me, I'm spacing on the... Manson. The, and Manson. Yep. And so if you're leading, right, if you're leading all of a sudden you want Manson in those minutes helping you kill it. And if you're trailing, probably Eric Johnson's your guy. And, you know, when you have to, Jack Johnson. <laughs> He's your guy. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I think, so you can build a top three and ride those guys. I really believe that you have to be tactically flexible enough to be like, okay, we're, we're going to build a, a fourth defenseman for our top four in the aggregate based on the skill set we have available of our other three guys and these three are fixtures. And I thought you saw them lean into that in a big way with Gerardo. 25 on five minutes, McCarr and, and Byram. Obviously, like very... What's 78% zone exit very, effectiveness. Very, very, very uh, <laughs> Tilted carefully toward. curated yeah. minutes. Shots were 21 to four for the Avs. Decent. Goals were three nothing. High danger chances were eight to one. <sighs> Just something to watch. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I still like having McCarr and Taves on the ice. They play so well off of each other. But you're right. It is such a nice wrinkle to be able to just like occasionally mix it up. And you just have Taves out there with Manson, for example, if you want like a bit of yeah. a heavier uh, formation. Mm-hmm. And then you just have Makar and Byram out there for an offensive zone shift. And it's like, that's a pretty tough thing to kind of try to wrangle when they can throw that many different looks at you. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, the Avs are, the Avs are the best team. Okay. At, at the end of the day, the Avs are the highest quality team remaining. That doesn't mean they're going to win it because the NHL is so cruel. Yeah. But There's no question in my mind that even when you look at, you know, the battle-tested Tampa Bay Lightning, like, the the Avs are a a different animal entirely than anyone else in this playoff. That's been true all along, and now they're eight wins away, and with an opponent that they should be materially better than. um, It's going to be fascinating to see if they can finally get it done. People around the league that have other vested interests, a.k.a. either work for other teams or cheer for other teams or cover other teams seem oddly resentful of the Colorado avalanche 
and we'll do we'll jump through all sorts of logistical hoops to try I, to discredit the team they put together. I may be it's finding, so bizarre to me. I may I may be talking to different people. Really? <laughs> yeah. I see a lot of people who are just like, no one can hit their fastball. Like, hey, they're not quite as no, good. No, this no, no, not not that not that they're not good. Yeah. I'm saying discredit like the process that they went through to put this team together in terms of like valuing them as a smart organization. Right. And being like, Oh, they just got lucky a couple of times. Oh, I know. Oh, Lou Lou couldn't afford Devontae. So they just stole him. It's like, all right. Well, yeah, they had well, the cap space and they had multiple second round picks. They, Why? And they, they were aggressive. <laughs> they were aggressive. And everyone, well, yeah, exactly. Like they, you like, get credit for winning those opportunities. You will get lucky every off season in this league. If you're in a position of benefit. Well, it's, it's funny that it's funny that anyone would ever do that while also giving like, you know, a ton of credit to like a Jim Benning for the JT Miller trade as right. if that's not the exact same thing, yeah, you know, and, and who misses their player, the player they lost more. The Lightning and JT Miller or the Islanders and Devontae? Oh, oh, the Lightning have completely crumbled since losing JT Miller. (laughs) They're in shambles. Right. Um, All right. Last prediction. I think Miko Rantanen scores a lot of goals in the series. He's so due. He only has one empty net goal so far. It's wild. And he's like, it's not like he's, he's not playing at his absolute best, but he's been involved enough where like you would think he'd score three out of four just based on being Miko Rantanen and being in those spots. And I think he's going to go off in the Um, series. I would love that for this reason. If you ask people how many top 10 players are in this series, right? They'll say four. Everyone will say four without hesitation, right? McCarr, McKinnon, McDavid, Dreisaitl. Yeah. But if Miko Rantanen doesn't belong in that conversation, he's not far off. Like, he's definitely on the fringes of that conversation. Yeah. Miko Rantanen is one of the most unique players in this league. He is completely elite. I have never seen a six foot five forward stick handle with his with his like hands as far out in front of his body mm. as Miko Rantanen does, um, which gives him this playmaking ability yeah. that, that, and this and this puck protection ability that honestly, I, I mean, I think he's I think he's probably I think he's probably a top three winger in this game, and I don't know that he's gotten enough credit. And if he gets to have a coming out series against this competition, if he stands out um, amidst this superstar series. Yeah. I think that would be great because people will finally begin to be like, Oh wow. That, that player is I've, ludicrous. I think he will. I think he's going to score some goals. Okay. Champions aren't born. They're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme Shopify, the all in one commerce platform to start, run and grow your business. Forget the off season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire.
recognize employees with Custom Ink, show customer appreciation with Custom Ink, outfit your teams with Custom Ink, easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at custominc.com. Lightning Panthers. Yeah, let's do this series. I'll start us off. I have to admit, I, uh, I find the fact that the Lightning swept the Panthers without Braden Point taking a single shift in this series still staggering to me. Not because I thought that they couldn't win the series, but for me, watching the Lightning down the stretch and then for large parts of that Leaf series, I didn't want to count them out, but it just, to me, it didn't look like a team that still had, like, gas left in the tank. Like, it looked like they had, like, run on absolute empty. They had used everything they possibly had available to them, and they were still going to put up a good fight. But, like, they might just be, like, a, like one gear behind a team that was as fast as the Leafs were. Just if they couldn't, like, corral I, them. I, I thought materially they were not going to be fast enough to win their division. Yeah. I, I Like, genuinely, I, I was wrong. But I thought losing Coleman, losing Gord, and then this past year losing Joseph, um, you know, subbing in the guys they subbed in, Hagel, um, you know, uh, Nick Paul. Paul. Uh, like a, a Perry, on and on, a Belmar. I just, I didn't know that they'd have enough forward push. Yeah. And they've made it work. Now, the one tweet that I was getting dunked on where I was like, I'm not sure if they're fast enough, that was sent in like January. And it's like, they changed their team. <laughs> like they changed their bottom six. It's like specifically being like, not sure if their bottom six is fast enough. They changed their bottom six and people were like, good call. It's like, hey, come on. They made some trades. But I did think that. I genuinely did think that they didn't have the speed to hang with the Leafs to hang with the Panthers, and they didn't. And here's sort of how, really quickly, right? Super passive forecheck. They played a 1-3-1 in both of those series with a ton of discipline, and it's a modified one because they drop their defender really far back. They are not... The, 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 the base of that 1-3-1 is closer to their goaltender than you typically find. So it's not really a neutral zone trap. It's We've got three guys squeezing you on, on the blue line, so good luck entering with control. And also, don't dump it in because we've got a six foot five guy back there. And whether Hedman's on the ice or not, it's either Hedman or it's Foot or it's um, McDonough. Yeah, right. We've got a huge guy back there who's going to be first back because we're playing him deeper than than you know is convenient for you. And so, I felt like the Leafs really struggled. It's ironic to say this because I felt like the Leafs really struggled against that more early in the series. Mm. And I felt like they did a better job of it late in the series. It's just that they lost both of those games, six and seven. Uh, but game five, I thought it mattered. I thought it was material. Um, the Panthers had no way of figuring it out. And they also struggled against a pretty similar setup that the Washington Capitals yes. threw at them uh, a series earlier. And they, they just could not find a way to attack as a five-man unit against either opponent. At no point in this playoffs did we see the Panthers play the sort of hockey they were able to in the regular well, season. Well, yeah, the difference of that series, I actually went back and rewatched it for a third time because I was like, I, I really want to see the difference here. Yeah. And, and, like, they weren't attacking off the rush against the Caps, but they right. would get the puck deep, and then the Capitals just couldn't break it out. So they, like, they were just compensating for all that rush they were missing with yeah. just like a four check they were just creating like rush like chances where like 
the Caps would be out of position defensively, right? Yeah. And that's why every one of those games that series went along. By the third period, the Panthers started looking much better because, like, it was just an accumulation of that. Yeah. Whereas the Lightning might not have even been exiting the zone cleanly, but their defensemen were so much better at, like, strategically placing the puck into the neutral zone so yeah. that at least they could not give the Cats those They were happy. They were right? happy to play some punt and hunt. They didn't need to possess the puck. And I, I just... The way... Here's, here's the biggest problem, is I think the way you have to adjust to playing against the Lightning's particular variation of the one through one is you have to almost go for home run passes. You almost have to break out at five on five the way you would on the power play. Yeah. Like you need to gain the line and make a, a quick pass, but you've got three guys squeezing plus, you know, a really good defender back there. And if you turn it over, it's going the other way. And the abs aren't like a super fast team that the punishes light, you. Light, light, sorry, sorry. Yeah. The lightning aren't yeah. a super fast team that pun- punishes you necessarily against the grain a ton. But if they get the chance to, they go for it. They go for it. They yeah. go for it. And and I don't know how you reliably break them down as as a as a skilled team without playing a pretty high risk style, like leaving yourself relatively exposed to those sorts of of counters. I, and for me, anyway, just based on how I'd gauge the lightning speed, like I think you have to live with that. And and that's that's I mean that's a tough way to live if you're an opponent. I think. Yeah, I get the vibe watching those games back that the Panthers like didn't do a pre-scout of the Lightning. Like it feels like they almost didn't watch the Leafs round 1 series because obviously they have different personnel. Or just watch their own first round series. I no, mean, no, 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 but there's certain things the Leafs did strategically yeah. that the Panthers theoretically should have been able to emulate at least in some capacity, mm-hmm. right? Like the Leafs created so many odd man rushes from pressuring high in the defensive zone yeah. because if the Lightning do have one weakness, it's you don't necessarily want Zach Bogosian to be on his back foot handling a bobbling puck no. at the blue line. Any of their defensemen really like you know what I mean? Like even Victor Hedman, yeah. who is even an amazing all world defender. Yeah, he's an enormous individual, and one of the negatives of that is when the puck gets in their skates it can become like kind of clumsy for them to try to fish it out, even, even for Victor Hedman. That's his one weakness. If the puck is in front of him, even if you have it for a second, you won't have it for long because <laughs> yeah. he will take it from you. Yes. And th- that's what's amazing to me with this Lightning team. Like, if, if you play into their hands of like allowing them to lean on you like that physically, like you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And the Panthers seem to be like, I don't know if they were unaware of that, or but they just seemed unwilling to kind of compromise and try something different. And that's what's mind-blowing to me. Like, I understand that they had such a successful regular season, but you're right. You would have thought, based on how their round one went, that they would have been kind of primed or to, to be like, all right, we might have to change things up here a little bit. And they, they really just showed none of that. In game four, they did, and they started being much more aggressive, but by yeah, then it was too late, too late. And, and Vasilevsky just closed the door on them. Well, and so I'm a little torn here because to what extent can you... To, how dangerous is it to overreact to a four-game sweep in which one team's save percentage is 980-plus and the other's is sub-900, right? I mean, it's, it, you have to be able to take that step back and say, okay, you know, there, there's a fair bit of this that is just that Vasilevsky dominated and we actually didn't play that badly. But the fact that it also happened the prior series, the fact that there's the same issues that eliminated them in a sweep caused them to struggle far more than they should have against a caps team i think does begin to pose some greater questions one thing one thing i'd note is you know after after lafair quinville 
in in you know the winter um they kept brunette yeah. who did a phenomenal job but the rest of their coaching staff is you know guys who you any of our listeners will remember playing right it's of samuelson it's Derek McKenzie, it's Tomo Rutu, from what I understand, and I know Derek McKenzie really well, as smart a guy as you'll find. Really enjoyed working with him. Um, but there's not a ton of experience on that coaching staff. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they're going to end up doing with Bruno. I know there's been some speculation. Bill, Bill Zito's been really consistent about saying that they'll figure it out after the season. But I wonder as they sort of review things internally and have those conversations, uh, whether or not they stick with Bruno if the need to bring in just somebody, someone who's seen it all, someone who's, who's been there, I, I think would help. Uh, I think it would have helped in figuring out a, a pair of one, three ones that they really struggled to match up with. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they would have lost anyways in the series. I just thought that like their game plan really didn't give, give them uh, a fighting chance. Undeniable. I mean, obviously they got swept, but I like, I, it's really like Vasilevsky is awesome. And he was remarkable in that final game four clincher as he is in like every closeout game in every mm-hmm. series he plays. But their offensive approach to me just like was not good enough to really challenge them in any indiscernible way, right? It was a lot of like the Lightning being like, yeah, sure, be on the outside here. We're going to feel very comfortable that you're not going to break into the middle of the ice. Right. And so they got a lot of shots. But interestingly enough, the Lightning won the expected goal battle. They won the high danger chance battle. And I don't think that was a fluke. So yes, Vasilevsky being Vasilevsky made a difference, but I would I would be alarmed seeing the way they played and, and thinking that was that was good enough or oh we can just run this back in this same capacity and yeah. just hope for better goaltending results. Like I, I don't think that's no, what I it agree was. with you. I think I think there needs to be you know like they didn't, some some type of change like, by the bench. I normally hate this play, the high flip, because I think teams abuse it and then it's like you're basically just giving the puck away. But like the Leafs were doing it to such great effect because it was like a very tactical high flip where. They were like intentionally throwing it deep and allowing William Nealon well, to try to skate did into it, it against the the Panthers too. And the Panthers did it at, not at all. Zero. No, they attack as a five man unit. Yeah, and they're they, like we're going to pass the puck up the ice from point A to point B, and it's like yeah. that's not going to work. Well, and you talked about it with the with the Caps series too. Like the Caps didn't have they played a more classic one three one. I yeah. think they were more vulnerable to the dump in, and we just didn't see the Panthers go to it enough, considering how much havoc their forecheck was wrecking. You know, it's like they really wanted to do that five-man attacking thing that the Panthers do, and, and they just kind of couldn't against the Caps, or at least the way they were playing. I felt like they didn't play the games in front of them. Yeah. You know, they, they kept trying to play their game. Uh, and, then, and then I do think uh, going away from Uyghur Ekblad, particularly because I think Ekblad was still feeling the effects of that severe injury that he sustained in the second half. Yep. Um, you know, and playing Chirad Ekblad, I think, left them too slow. On the back end, I think that was also an issue. Where did you have Anthony Sorelli on your Selkie ballot this year? I top three. Yeah, well, that's why you're a smart man. That's that's on the, <laughs> on the video cast with me right now. I, I mean, I don't think we're allowed to reveal this, but behind Patrice Bergeron, mm. <laughs> but I don't think I had him much lower than that. 153 five on five minutes so far this postseason. Yeah, how many goals against? Wait, 52, okay. 52 and a half minutes, or almost fifty three minutes against Austin Matthews. 25 and a half minutes against Sasha Barkov. Those were his top two most common. Are those guys opponents. good? Good players. Two goals against. That's outrageous. Obviously, Hedman was out on the ice for a lot of that in round one. He was basically like it was him in point against Matthews, especially at home. Uh, another 40 shorthanded minutes, only three goals against in those as well. I and mean, a big shorty. 
like such a good player. I, I he's obviously never going to get the shine he deserves on this team just because no. of all the flash that's in, in front of him on the depth chart. But like, man, that guy similar to Hyman, what we were talking about, like the concept of like a motor that just never stops going. Yeah. Like, have you ever watched an Anthony Sorelli shift where he kind of just like coasts no. and then does a lap and then goes out the, I think like he obviously has to play that way. Cause otherwise he wouldn't be in the NHL. Like he doesn't have the raw skill to be doing like ridiculous skill moves. And then if he doesn't have it, go off the ice and come yeah. back and try it again. Like he has to play that way every time. But like the fact, the consistency of it is remarkable to me. If he was another team's top line center, would we talk about him like new NHL Mike Pekka? I say yes. Well, RFA again next summer. $4.8 million cap hit right now. They're never going to lose these guys. Seven, <laughs> They're never going to lose these guys. They're how, always going to figure it out. How, how much money in, in real salary do you think he's making next year? Uh, here, here's the thing. Who, who do they have? Do you have the page up right now? Uh, no, I have, I have okay. his contract details written down. Okay, but because you've got... They bridged three guys. Yes. They bridged three guys in the summer of 2020. After the first After cup. the first cup win. Cernak? Yep. Sorelli. I know Sorelli was three. Yeah. And I know that Sergeyev was three. Was Cernak two? I think Cernak was two. So he might be up after this year. I just I just can't quite remember if he's two or three. I'll pull it up for you right now. This yeah, is please. I mean this is great podcasting. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Well, I have a really good point that I actually want to make. No, here. no, Cernak, Cernak and Sorelli and Sergachev are oh, all up after next year. Okay, perfect. So the Avs do this thing where they bridge everybody. Yeah. Right. And they they this dates back to Hedman and to Stamkos, who both you got about, the Avs are the Lightning. I, I keep, keep messing me. it up. The Lightning. <laughs> The Lightning bridge everybody, dating yep. back to Stamkos and Hedman. Yep. But they also do this thing where they extend the, the core guys who take less on a bridge deal. They get extensions a year out and on the day of, right? Yep. Point yep. on the day of. Yep. Hedman on the day he was eligible. Yep. Um, so that's sort of their, their deal. Their deal with guys is, hey, we're going to hose you on your second contract. And then you will be taken care of on your third. Vasilevsky is the other guy. Kucherov's the other guy. They did all of their guys in the exact same mode. So what's interesting is this is sort of the low end test because ultimately all of the Vasilevsky, Hedman, Stamkos point tier got taken care of relatively similar numbers, right? Nine five nine five. Um, Stamkos is whatever he is. I think he's nine five. Yep. And and then. Um, uh, and then, uh, sorry, the one guy is a little lower. Hedman's a little lower. The defenseman. Hedman's at seven eight seven five. Yeah. Right. So, what level did, did they're? My guess is they're just going to set some level that they think is like fair for their mid tier guys, and those will all get either announced on the day that they become eligible, or they'll be dealt before it. That's my that's my guess. Yeah. Like they're they. To manage the cap like this, to stagger your contracts like this, to do what the Lightning do best, you you literally have to have like an understanding with your players about how it works, like a deal, a sacred deal between team and team and player that it functions in this way. And they've been so disciplined about sticking to it with all their core guys. And we're going to get this new test for it with these mid-tier guys, which is a little bit different. Like we've seen them do it, I guess, with Palat, with Johnson. Kalorn, yep. um, um, yep. but but those numbers were like four seven five, yep. and in the new NHL, those numbers are going to be higher. To this point, we haven't seen a Tampa Bay Lightning player just be like, "Nah, I want to go max out my my income." They're they're all they have all seemed to be happy to stay there, but uh, that that test is going to be fascinating. Hey, really quick, Lightning Colorado. Okay, we well, you, you didn't answer my question about how much you think Sorelli's making next year. 
Oh, uh, on as an R, he's an RFA with four, four arbitration point, eligible. Oh, oh, so he's four. Okay, no, I mean in terms of the like the contract he's on right now. Yeah, he's making four point eight in terms of the cap. Yeah, you want me? What's his real salary? Do you think? Seven. Seven point two. Yeah, seven. That's, that's a way to keep a guy happy. Well, and and that's signed after the new grandfathered in deal, yeah. right? So I'm not exactly sure what the QO will be, but it'll be a high QO. Yeah, and yeah, I mean that is a way to keep a guy happy. I think he's he's uh, Pat Morris. He's represented by Newport, so they've they'd structure that deal right. But um, you know he's going to have a high QO too, so I, that's going to be a really tough guy to keep. That's going to be a tough guy to keep. Yeah, I don't, I don't. But they're going to do it. They're going to figure it out. They're the Lightning. No, I, I was. They thinking, never lose good players like this. I was thinking like there's a lot. You know, we're, we're saying about the Avs, the model, the, how they built this team and kind of like how replicable it is, like what you can learn from it, right? With the Lightning, it is a lot of stuff where like they've obviously done an immaculate job of, of keeping everyone. But like they've also done stuff that I just think like other organizations probably just can't. For sure. But, but I, I, I think there's a key lesson to the Lightning though. The Lightning, the, the key lesson to the Lightning, because I actually think the Avs model is less replicable because the Avs model requires you to you know, hit an absolute home run on a trade. Um, it requires you to make mistakes. Like the Avs lesson is that, you know, Joe Sackick threw in his chips with Patrick was vision for the team. It yeah. failed spectacularly. And then he learned from that and completely reoriented. Like he was the, he was the greatest hall of fame level player who ever learned a new trick. And that new trick was, Hey, uh, why don't I, you know, prioritize things completely different from what I thought mattered as a player. Right. It was just a, that that's the lesson there. The lightning though, what the lightning did was just so unbelievably stubborn. That's the lesson from the lightning. The lightning felt like they had some things that worked. Yes. And then when they failed, yeah, repeatedly, they, didn't cave, yeah. they, they didn't cave. And that includes multiple three, one comp leads in the conference final to the eventual cup winner in which they lost three games in a row, right? That happened to them three times. Uh, they missed the playoffs in 2017. Yeah. The year after uh, Kucherov first got bridge. Yeah. Um, they got swept. Obviously, we all know that in 2018. That's part of the lore. Yeah, and they never fired in 2019. 2019. Yeah. And they never fired Cooper. No. How many? How many times? Like, so how many? How many teams can like make the Cup final in 16, miss the playoffs two years later, get swept after one of the greatest seasons of all time, and keep their job? Like they were so stubborn about their approach. That's what teams need to take from the light. Well. But I also the reason why I don't want to do, don't know what to do with them in terms of like a, a learning mm-hmm. exercise is like they're the ultimate winner now, right? Like they're going for a three peat here. Yeah, they're they're one of the great teams of all time. Before this, if they do it, if they before do it. this, they were getting laughed at as the team that couldn't get over the hump. They kept losing in in you know bad fashion in the postseason, blowing yeah. leads, then getting swept after a historic regular season. Yeah, and and so now they're the ultimate winner. But, like, to be a winner, you have to win. It's, like, this weird, weird cycle, you know what I mean? Where it's, like, all these tropes about, like, a a winning mentality. Yeah. And, like, they clearly have it now because when I watch them, I usually roll my eyes at this stuff. But, like, seeing how poised they are in high leverage moments where, like, you don't see them panic. You know what I mean? At all. Like, they don't even see them sweat. They'll make, like, yeah, they can go down or something. And then you, like, look at the bench and John Cooper is just, like, has this kind of, like, sly grin on his face, his hands, his pockets. And you just like they know it's under control, and you can you have the benefit of feeling that way after you've won two cups in a row, but that's like a tough spot to get to for anyone else. 
it is. I, I but I but it's a good reminder too that today's soft playoff loser is, is tomorrow's winner. Is tomorrow's big winner, <laughs> especially when you think about like the last three cup winners are the Lightning, the Washington Capitals, and the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, and it's like those are also three of the most disappointing playoff teams of the last decade, right. with the exception of San Jose. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I think there's copious lessons to draw from that. If you're one of the many teams that fell short in the playoffs, if you're a Minnesota, if you're a Toronto, if you're honestly Vegas, like Vegas missed the playoffs and they fired Pete DeBoer. But, you know, how much should they deconstruct their approach? Like probably not that much, at least if the lightning model is um, is your template. If you have the right people, if you believe in what you're doing, being stubborn within it, I think that's the key lesson from the lightning. And it's really not a lesson so much for managers or coaches or for the level of people that we usually point this advice toward when, right. when we talk about hockey. It's really, it's really a piece of advice for ownership. Yeah, it is. It's really a piece of it. Yes. Like the Lightning's success can't be separated from Jeff Finnick. He's the best owner in hockey. And anyone who wants to replicate the Lightning, um, you know, that starts in the owner suite. That starts with owners taking a look in the mirror and, and figuring out exactly how they want to structure their own organizations and businesses. Well, that's a tougher sell for any GM out there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's and maybe that's why we don't get talked. It's a lot it easier to make a couple much. trades or fire your coach. Um, <laughs> and that's a good note to end on here. Yeah, Tom, plug some stuff. What uh, what are you working on? What can, where can people check you out? Oh man, you can check out a ton of stuff from me at the Athletic Sportsnet um, uh, six fifty. I do the Canucks Hour day every day. It sometimes it's at noon, sometimes it's eleven. Uh, but you can also get it on you know whatever podcatcher you prefer. Uh, and I've also got the VanCast at The Athletic with Farhan Lalji. Uh, that's, that's, that's the most of it. That's what I do. I love it, man. Yeah. Well, keep up the great work. Uh, my only plug is please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to the show. Each of those is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. We will be back soon, I promise. Uh, we didn't get to cover Rangers, Hurricanes, obviously, because we're still waiting to see how that series ends. But whoever plays the Lightning in the conference final, we will get to that series then. So thanks for listening, Tom. Thanks for coming on the show. And we'll be back soon. The Hockey PDOcast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.